Well, as Rich mentioned at the start, uh, we're about nearly halfway through a sermon series looking at the seven letters that were written to the seven churches in Asia Minor um, that appear in the book of Revelation. And uh, we're looking this morning at the, the church in Sardis. And this morning, this is always a hostage to fortune, but it, today's talk is, is quite simple, and it should be quite short. Um, it's a bit like me. It's short and simple. Um, it's the famous last words, of course. I now preach for 45, 50 minutes, and you'll be thinking, hang on, Dave, you said it was going to be short. But there really is only one central point to this message. Sometimes you hear talks that have three points, all beginning with B. That's what Baptists preach. Um, you know, you have different ways of constructing a talk. And as I've looked at it this week, I just keep on coming back to one central point. There's one central theme that just keeps on coming back again and again and again. So hopefully, if we're all agreed, it can be just one point, and then we'll all leave home happy. And we'll leave here anyway. Um, and I want to begin by, by showing you an antique. Um, 17 years ago, um, I bought this. Um, this was my first mobile phone. When I say it was my first mobile phone, it was actually a phone that Kathy and I shared. Uh, that's what you did 17 years ago. You shared a mobile phone. And it's amazing. Look, it has an aerial and everything. Um, it's a bit like a sort of walkie-talkie. Um, and, and we bought this in 1998 because Kathy was pregnant. And we were about to go um, to, down to Skegness. Um, I was, I'd been asked to speak at Spring Harvest. And um, the invitation had come in, and I'd said no to it because I knew that Kathy would be fairly heavily pregnant by that stage. Kathy said, oh, it's okay, Josh, our first child. He came uh, late. This one will be late as well. I'll be bored by then. We'll just go to Spring Harvest and, and go. And we got to Spring Harvest, and of course, um, immediately we got to, to Skegness, to Butlins, um, and uh, Kathy, on the Saturday night, the first night, said, I don't feel quite right. And um, we weren't completely stupid. We had a friend who was a midwife who'd come with us uh, for the week. Um, but the next morning, um, Nathan was born, um, and he did come uh, two weeks early on the 5th of April. And I can remember being in Boston Maternity Hospital um, with this thing, this mobile phone. And using this mobile phone to say to my in-laws, uh, we're in Boston, uh, it's a baby boy, you need to come now. Uh, my talking schedule this week at Spring Harvest is completely shot, um, and uh, Kathy needs you to come and look after her, and we're going to work out what will happen in the rest of the week. And the rest of the week, I went round Spring Harvest, and every single woman looked at me, because word travelled around that my wife had given birth at Spring Harvest, and every single woman looked at me as if to say, you stupid man, how could you do that to your wife? And I hadn't got the opportunity to say, it was her idea that we came. I, I'm blameless in this. Um, now, my reason for, for sharing that story is not just to embarrass Kathy, and she'll kill me afterwards, um, or to remind myself that Nathan's birthday is on the 5th of April, um, which I always seem to get wrong for some reason. Um, but actually, to, to tell you the story of the firm, the company that made this phone. H hands up if you had a phone like this. One, this is 
you know, confessions. Hi, my name's Dave. I used to have a Motorola phone. Come on, you can put your hand nice and high. If you look around, it's quite a number of people who used to have uh, a Motorola phone. Um, the next phone that I had, if we can have the next slide, Alison, was a, I thought it was really cool. This was a Motorola Razor. This was really cool. Tom Cruise used this in Mission Impossible 2, and that's why I got that phone. Um, so it says a lot about Tom Cruise and me. Um, and then all of a sudden, they started, phones began to do things that they didn't do. So phones like this were for one reason, for making a phone call. Phones like that were making phone calls and perhaps texting, um, if you could just start to work out how. But then mobile phones started to do things like having apps and all sorts of different things that you could do. And over the next 20 years, the firm that made this phone, Motorola, well, their story is quite sobering. In 1994, Jim Collins, who's an American um, business consultant, wrote a book called Built to Last. And this book was written looking at companies that had survived and thrived, and companies in the same industry, same field, that had not lasted the course. And in that book, Built to Last, Jim Collins identified Motorola as one of the top 20 visionary companies in the world. By the mid-1990s, its annual revenue had grown from $5 billion to $27 billion. And when I bought this phone in 1998, um, Motorola had 50% of the market share of mobile phones around the world. 50%. That's why I asked you to put your hands up. Lots of us had a Motorola phone. 50% of market share in 1998. By 2001, it had employed 147,000 people across the world. But then something started to happen. In 1995, they announced a new mobile phone. It was called the Star TAC. As a company, they'd invested $537 million in a, a share in a network of 66 satellites that were orbiting the Earth. And they were going to use those satellites to transmit their analog technology. Now, all this happened as mobile phone companies started to explore something called digital technology. Some of you know more about this than I do. When asked if they were investing wisely in analog technology, a senior executive of Motorola replied with these haunting words, 43 million analog customers can't be wrong. Well, it turns out they were. Market share fell quickly. 50% in 1998 became, by 2014, 3%. Only 3% of people around the world now have a mobile phone made by Motorola, and it's now been bought out by a company called Lenovo, and if you go into a mobile phone shop, uh, you will find some Motorola phones, but not many. In his last book, Jim Collins, the same American business consultant, it was called How the Mighty Fall, identified companies that had managed to survive the crash in 2008 and those companies that had not managed to survive the crash in 2008. And Motorola was one of those companies that he identified as failing spectacularly. 
From employing 147,000 people, by 2003, only six years later, Motorola employed only 88,000. They lost nearly 60,000 jobs across the world, including some uh, just across in West Lothian. And in his last book, How the Mighty Fall, Collins identified what he calls, and identified it as the hubris of success leading to arrogant neglect. The hubris of success leading to the arrogance of neglect. It's that belief that a company, a sports team, a football team, an organization, or even a church is somehow untouchable. That just because you're succeeding at one stage, then that means that you're unbeatable, that you are impregnable, that nothing can happen to you to drag you down and cause you to fail. Now, Sardis, the city in which the church that the letter was written that Mike read for us a few moments ago was situated, Sardis was historically in exactly the same situation. It was a city south of Thyatira in Asia Minor. And the best days of Sardis as a city and as a church were behind it. It had been the center of the wool industry for its region, and it had built its wealth and its status on one particular feature of its geography. And its geography was, as represented by that photograph, that it was right on the top of a very steep hill or mountain. And the way in which you approached Sardis, and there was only seemingly one way to approach the city, meant that you were visible for miles around. And if you wanted to invade and take the city of Sardis, everybody would see you coming. And Sardis built its wealth and it built its status on the fact that it was impregnable. It was unbeatable. It was unconquerable. Nobody could get into the city without coming through one particular way. And army after army after army tried to conquer Sardis, but failed. And the more the armies tried and failed, the more the reputation of Sardis grew. That this was a city that could not be taken. That this was a city that was impregnable. And that's why its wealth and its status increased and increased and increased. Until one day, in 546 BC, Cyrus of Persia managed somehow to take the city. This city that was unconquerable, this city that was impregnable, was conquered. And in fact, it was conquered five times over the next succeeding centuries. And not for the first time, Jesus takes an everyday picture a picture that the people that he was speaking to would have been very familiar with, and he uses that picture to illustrate a spiritual truth or a spiritual reality. He did it time and time again with parables, takes an everyday context, an everyday situation that the people he was speaking to were very familiar with, and he uses it as a spiritual illustration. Well, now Jesus is writing to these churches, and time after time he does the same. He takes something with which they are very familiar, and he uses it as a picture 
of a spiritual truth and reality. And I think the verdict on the church at Sardis is perhaps the most devastating of all the churches in Revelation. Yes, there are other ones that, you know, that they're lukewarm or there's a church that forgets its first love. But this one, I think, is quite chilling. Because the, the verdict on the church at Sardis, well, if you read the letter, it has no external and no specific enemies. There's no name-calling in the letter to the church at Sardis. There's no references to liars, as occurs elsewhere in the letters to the churches in Revelation. There's no naming of a Balaam or, or a Jezebel who's oppressing the church from outside. There's no throne or synagogue of Satan that we looked at last week. Of all the congregations in Asia Minor, we know the least about Sardis and its problems. But the one thing we do know is that its problems don't come from external opposition. They don't come from Jewish opposition. They don't even come from Roman persecution. They come from within. And the problem is far more profound. And we hear these chilling words spoken by Jesus to the church in Chardis, Sardis in verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. I think that's one of the most damaging profound, scariest, worst things that could ever be said about any church. You have a reputation for being alive, but the reality is you're dead. Imagine if somebody was able to say that about P's and G's. There's lots of ministry going on, there's lots of things that are happening. There were 125 children yesterday at Bounce. Nearly 100 guests at Soul Food last night. There'll be nearly 800 people at services this week. We've got well over 1,000 people now on the church database, well over nearly 1,200 on the church database on the website who associate themselves with P's and G's and call it their church. I was telling somebody this week from a parachurch organization, he was asking about the size of the church and was saying, well, that's who we are. And he said, well, that will make you the biggest church in Scotland, won't it? And I sort of stopped for a moment and thought, well, yes, suppose it will. But am I comfortable with being known as the largest church in Scotland? Do we really want to be known simply for our size? for the numbers of people who come in week by week. The church is busy. There are different activities happening every day of the week. It's very difficult to try and book a spot in the building. I know. I try and fail. They turn to me as the rector and say, no, Dave, you can't have a room that day uh, because the building's booked out. It's like, okay, I'll go somewhere else. <laughs> I'm not bitter. 
It's fine. But really, would we want to be known simply for the number of activities or the size of church that we are, the different number of meetings that people can come to? And it struck me this week that are we a church that's in danger of having a reputation for being alive that may be in fact dead? I don't think we are dead. I think we're growing spiritually. But it's always a danger in a church like P's and G's when we reach this sort of size and this sort of threshold, especially becoming a church that has a reputation. Well, what sort of reputation do we want? Do we really want to be known just as a big church? Wouldn't it be better to be known as a church that's loving, that's gracious, that's compassionate, that's merciful, that serves the poor, that reaches people spiritually who are lost? Wouldn't those sort of reputations be better than simply being known for being a big church? The reality is that historically it can happen to a church, it can happen to an organisation, it can happen to a company like Motorola, it can happen to a football team. Look at Rangers. I'm sorry if you're a Rangers fan, but the last four years have just been horrendous. It's only four years since somebody from this church took me to Ibrox and I watched Rangers play Man United in the Champions League. But you looked at their AGM on Friday in the news and you thought, they're basket cases. They really are. Only last year, there was a team called Parma who were sixth in the Italian league. That's Palmer celebrating winning the European Cup Winners' Cup in 1999. In 1999, they were one of Europe's top teams. Last week, they had to call off their fixture in Serie A because they couldn't pay stewards to look after the ground. And there were very poignant photographs of the gates of Palmer's ground just locked and the game not being allowed to carry on because a conservative estimate put their debt as between 100 and 200 million euros. Palmer, a bit like Leeds United in England, thought that they could buy their way to success and they just, just bought, think that the year before, they bought 250 players. Whoever thought that was a good idea? 250, you only play 11 at one time. <laughs> 250 players. If it can happen to an organization, if it can happen to a company, if it can happen to a football team, it can also happen to a church. And Sardis was a church that was spiritually bankrupt. And worse, it didn't seem to have realized the fact. And there's nothing sadder, nothing more chilling then seeing a church that once had a reputation for being alive start to die. Perhaps, like me, you've, you've driven through parts of Wales and you've driven through some of the valleys in Wales and you see chapel building after chapel building after chapel building. Watch the scenes of, of great revivals, places where God moved in incredible power and now the churches are redundant or they've been turned over to become a furniture store or an Indian restaurant. Nothing wrong with Indian restaurants. 
It's not the best use for a church building. It's certainly chilling for me if we come closer to home as someone who helps to lead a church in Scotland to drive past that church on the M8 at Kirkus Shots. Scene of an amazing revival on Monday the 21st of June in 1630, just before that phone had been built. It had been arranged that John Livingston, then a probationary minister, should preach in the kirkyard at Kirkus Shots after the communion weekend. And so on the Monday morning, he preached on the text from Ezekiel 36. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. His sermon, which lasted for two and a half hours, I was with the days. Now it just seems as though they last two and a half hours. His sermon, which lasted two and a half hours, was much used by God and changed the hearts of 500 people that morning. He preached for many years after that, but said that he never again witnessed such a melting of hearts as he did that day in Shots, Lonely Kirkyard. According to one account of that particular day, many were so choked and taken by the heart in hearing the word of God, they have been made to fall over. This was Toronto before Toronto. This was Wimber before Wimber. This was all sorts of stuff happening four or five hundred years ago in Scotland. Many had been made to fall over, who afterwards proved most solid and useful Christians. <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> and yet now, well, if you ask most people about the church on the M8, it's known as the church that had a banner appealing for money to save its roof. In fact, the message on the banner was even more poignant for two or three years. It simply said, save our church. And as I drove past it when I used to go to meetings in Glasgow, it used to strike me again and again and again. The message, save our church. The church is there to save people. People aren't there to save the church. And 400 years after this place being a sort of iconic place, a thin place for the church in Scotland, where God's Spirit had moved in incredible power, now it was simply derelict, empty, and they were appealing for outside help to save it as an historic monument. There's another building elsewhere that the congregation now meets in Shots itself, a new building. But this place has simply become a museum. How is it possible for a church to have a reputation for being alive and yet be spiritually dead? Well, I think it happens in lots of ways. You can have lots of activity but forget why you do it. Maybe you take pride, perhaps, in the wrong things. You have a refurbished 6.9 million building and you take pride in having a new building. That's fantastic. And we can use it in all sorts of ways to have bounce in Saturday morning and soul food in the evening and then three services on a Sunday. But maybe if you start to forget why we did the building refurbishment, maybe perhaps if you start to take pride in numbers, maybe if you start to take pride in the music, whether it's classical or traditional, maybe you get trapped in tradition Maybe you get tied into being relevant 
Maybe you have, sadly, a death orthodoxy where you believe the right things, but they make no difference to everyday life. So week after week, people come and they sing the right songs, they say the right creeds, they read the Bible from the right translation in whatever circle you move in. But somehow something has happened. You continue to grow in numbers, but you decrease in commitment, relationships, and service. There's no more chilling verdict or indictment on a church. I think I once was part of a church like that. It's not P's and G's, it was a previous church that I was a member of. And it was a church, it was a large church, and it had a reputation. But then something started to go wrong. Relationships and the leadership started to become dysfunctional. People still came to the church, and people still came from other churches to this church, People came from abroad to this church because of its reputation. But something was different. Something seriously had happened at the heart of the church. And it's only years later that I've, in fact, discovered what happened at the heart of that church's life. And one of the things that it struck me thinking this week, the joy left the building. The happiness left the building. People still came, and some people still served, but really they did it out of duty. And you can only do something out of duty for so long. If you've lost your passion for it, if you've lost your joy in doing it, then the motivation goes, and the enthusiasm goes. And the reality is that people notice. The leadership of that church thought that nobody had noticed the reality was that everybody in that church knew that something had changed. Everybody in that church knew that it was not the church that it had once been. And it was very sad to be part of that church. And a number of us tried to pray for that church, and people in the church were concerned, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. And I remember in one particular prayer meeting, somebody got a picture, a prophetic picture, an image, um, because it was an Anglican church, and in charismatic Anglican churches, God only speaks in pictures. Pentecostal churches get first person, I, God, say to you, but Anglican churches, they get pictures. But a person had a picture, and the picture was of a lampstand. And the, the light, the candle in the lampstand was, the wick was really, really low, and the light was almost extinguished. And I remember in this church prayer meeting, people praying, prayer after prayer, Lord, don't let that light go out. Don't let that light be extinguished. Lord, please, please, keep that light alight. And then the church started to grow again, and the church became alive again. Just as I was moving on. Maybe the two were linked. I don't think so. <laughs> but that's what Jesus says will happen to the church in Sardis. 
The offer is there for them to repent, verse 3. Remember what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Jesus holds out the offer of hope to every individual Christian and every church that they can come back. If they'll acknowledge things as they really are, if they'll acknowledge their spiritual poverty, if they'll ask for his help, then just like the prodigal son, if they begin that journey home, then he will come to them. But if they don't repent then he will also come. But he won't come like a father, he will come like a thief. And again, for the church in Sardis, this would have had resonances of of Cyrus of Persia, coming to this city, coming to this town, coming to this place that thought it was impregnable. Jesus coming in a way that nobody could spot, in a way that nobody would expect, coming, not his second coming, that's something else. But this coming to the church inside is coming in judgment, removing the lampstand, removing the star from this church. And so there's this promise that if we will repent, we can share in the triumph of Jesus. And the promise is there, verse 4, that if we will repent, then Jesus will give us new clothes. Remember, this is written to a town that was city that was known for its textile industry. People would be given new clothes. They'd be given white robes, white robes, and people would not doubt whether it was gold and white or blue and black. They would know that these were white robes because white robes in Revelation are symbols of endurance and symbols of holiness. And the promise for the Christians in Sardis, just as the promise for the Christians in Edinburgh, is if we will repent, if we will remember what we have received and heard and hold fast to it, then we will be given white robes. And the challenge for us individually and collectively, therefore, is how do we know if we are that church? How can we prevent P's and G's becoming a church that has a reputation for being alive, but is in fact spiritually dead? How can we avoid singing the right songs, going to the right conferences, and knowing inside all the time that when we come to church, it's so easy to put on a show for other people. It's so so easy to come in and to to come in and to sing the songs and and to to read the Bible and to pray the prayers and, and inside be spiritually dying, even to give the sermon and inside be spiritually dying. And the first step is acknowledging things as they really are. Being honest with ourselves and allowing God to be honest with us. And then beginning that journey back to God, just like the prodigal son did. Turning around, repenting, 180 degrees, stop going your way, start going God's. And yet finding God as a father, waiting for you, looking for you, coming to you, running to you with not just a robe, but a ring and sandals, to reinstate you, to to walk alongside you. In the story of the prodigal son, to act as your human shield. That's what the father does, going out to where the son is and walking back with the son into the village because he knew that if his son came back into the village alone, he would be stoned because of the dishonor that he brought upon the village and upon that family. And so the father goes to be with the son, to walk back with the son, 
giving him the best robe, giving him the sandals, giving him the ring, and walking back alongside him as a human shield to say, this is my son. That which once was lost has been found. And he walks back with his son. And that can be our experience as individuals. Maybe this morning you're tired. Maybe you feel a long way away from God. Maybe you feel weary of the Christian faith. Maybe you feel weary of church. Maybe you feel tired. Maybe you feel distant. Maybe you feel dry. Maybe if you were honest enough with yourself this morning and with God, you would be honest enough to say that spiritually it feels as though you're dying inside then the offer to you, the offer to me, is to come afresh this morning, to repent, to come back to God, to hear him speaking words of love, to hear him speaking words of comfort, to hear him speaking words of invitation, and to see him giving us a white robe, to reinstate us, to call us back home, to give us fresh vision, to give us fresh hope, to give us fresh love, to give us fresh peace, to give us fresh inspiration, so that we won't just be a church that is a church that's large in numbers, but we'll be a church that is large in love, and a church that's large in grace, and a church that's large in mercy, and a church that's large in welcome, that is there serving the poor, and is there helping people who are spiritually dead, but who Jesus can make alive. In a lecture this week, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, said it's all very simple what the church exists for. The church exists simply to tell people about Jesus Christ. Everything else is decoration. That's why we exist as a church. That's why we exist as peace and Jesus. And the promise is that if we'll come back to God, then he's there to give us hope and energy and strength and power and peace. But we take the first step as we turn around and begin that journey back to him.